Turn with me in your Bibles for our first reading from Galatians chapter 6. Lord willing, we will finish that book today and begin Ephesians this afternoon. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But every man, but let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another, for every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. A word on uh, the text itself as we begin Some of you have in your authorized version there at the end of the book of Galatians, unto the Galatians written from Rome. That's not in the Bible. That's why the the Trinitarian Bible Society in the Bible, uh, the, the printers of this Bible, that's why it's in little small text at the bottom and not a part of the text. Uh, as a matter of fact, they have made an editorial decision, I think I've told you this before, that they will no longer put those in Bibles because they're, they're not part of the text. It's, it's just a traditional understanding. Okay? All right. So that being said, let's go ahead and dive in. First of all, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault. Notice here, this is not the Apostle Paul raising up a censorious attitude toward one another. No, it is if any be What's the word? Overtaken 
in a fault. Beloved, we're always in some fault or other. None of us are operating in that, in that area of you know, perfection that the law of God requires. This is speaking of those, may I say, more extraordinary cases where someone is overtaken in a fault. It w- where, where it would obviously be uh, hatred of that brother or sister to leave them in that estate. This is what's being spoken of. We remember Leviticus, right? 19, that, that we shall not suffer sin. And again, there by the word sin, we don't mean just any old thing that we ordinarily commit as part of our daily living. What Jesus will describe to Peter as, you know, needing your feet washed as you walk through this world. Not like that. But something that is overtaking. Something that is injurious. Injurious beyond that uh, that regular human existence that suffers under a, a want of perfection. So ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. There are some who would uh, re- relate this word spiritual to Paul's use of that same term in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14, where that would refer to, for instance, the officers of the church. And while certainly the officers of the church are in view here, I don't believe that it is exclusively them. That it is the office, if you will, if I can use that word, of every Christian to care enough one for another. That if we see our brother or sister having stumbled under some load, right? I mean, can't we reason from the lesser to the greater? Did not the law command, and we'll use the general equity principle here, did not the law command that even if we were to see our, our enemy's beast fall under his load, that we were to help him reload and to bring him up again? Well, if we might reason from the general equity of that command, certainly then with regard to our brothers and sisters, if we see them failing under a load of sin or guilt, we should indeed have compassion upon them and, in, and endeavor to the best of our uh, mostly meager abilities to help them up again. Now, how do we do that? There is specific instruction as to how we do that, right? First of all, ye which are spiritual. That is, we make sure that we examine our own hearts first to make sure that the motivation we have for going to our brother is not carnal. That it is a spiritual motivation instead. And how will we know that? How will we know? Well, that it does not include any sort of censoriousness. Right? By censoriousness. That's that finger of accusation. Notice also it says that that spiritual person will restore, not accuse. Restoration is in mind here, not observation, not being, you know, captain obvious, if you will. But instead, restoration is in view. Thirdly, a spirit of meekness. And by meekness, meekness is the larger word. He might have said the spirit of humility, and that would have been uh, good instruction, But he widens it out. It's not only humility. Meekness includes humility. But it also includes a particular uh, 
a particularly spiritual uh, gentleness that ought to be included with this kind of uh, help and correction. And then also, there is also a, uh, a particular kind of wariness or warning that is given, looking to yourself, lest thou also be tempted. Tempted perhaps to lord it over. Tempted perhaps to come with a haughty attitude. Tempted perhaps to be less than gentle or humble and so on. So what the apostle does here is he tells us our duty and then if I can put it this way to make it more memorable he tells us that it is also a dangerous duty. That, that, that there is much that, that, um, that stands by way of, of erring to the left or to the right in such a procedure. It's easy for us to get off track. It's a dangerous duty. Yet, it is a duty nonetheless. Okay? So that's the first verse. Notice what he says there in verse 2 then. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And yet, every man will bear his own burden in verse 5. It seems like Paul was a reader of the Proverbs. Right? Remember the Proverbs where Solomon will say, Do not answer a fool according to his folly. And then in the next verse, Answer a fool according to his folly. And so when we see verses like that, when we see things that are set in this obvious juxtaposition one against another, what do we do? We, we are drawn into that text to wring more out of it, aren't we? And so the first thing that Paul will say is, that we are to bear one another's burdens. But we also note that the human heart is deceitful and wicked, and who can know it? And so if we hear that our brothers are supposed to bear our burdens, we might be tempted then to alleviate ourselves of all responsibility. And so the apostle will write, for every man shall bear his own burden as well. And so there is, I don't want to use the word balance because I think the word balance is overused with regard to the scripture. I think we just want to be scriptural, not balanced. Right? And what is scriptural here? That when we see our neighbor, our brother in Christ, falling under a load of guilt and sin and so on, that we help him up. But we do so in a particular way so as not to relieve him of his burdens, but to fit him for carrying his burdens once again. Okay, And then notice also, for if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But every man shall prove his own work, and then he shall have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Certainly he's not talking about that he won't have rejoicing in Christ or rejoicing in God. He's talking about that the Lord has fitted him through the means of another's help to bear his burdens once again. This is what true help is. This is why we don't give money to people that don't bear their burdens. This is why Paul will say, if a man doesn't work, neither shall he eat. That's why he says that. We don't relieve people of their necessary duty in helping them. We help them to their duty. Oh, beloved, this is a, this is a great big point. We've all heard the phrase, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And we've all trembled to hear that phrase. Much of that kind of help that comes to people today is not helping them 
to their duty, but replacing them in their duty. We must make sure that we ourselves do not fall into that trap in our help of one another, because certainly there comes a point at which it's not help any longer. It's indulging the indolent. And beloved, that's a sin. And so we would need others to minister to us. Right? Okay, so let's make sure we hear Paul clearly there. Every man shall bear his own burden. All right, so now we move on in verse 6. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. This is... um, this is the admonition of the apostle to, uh, to make sure that you're taking care of your minister. You take care of yours, okay? So don't hear me saying anything uh, by way of complaint. You take care of your minister. But this is a necessary thing. He who plows should plow in hope. We should care enough about the ministry of the gospel that we recognize that it, it is costly and it is worth something. Very often we have we've we've contemplated this before that that if there is a um, if if something is given to us for free, often its its uh, value falls before our very eyes. We don't consider it as as valuable as we ought, and so that's a part of what we need as as human beings: the reminder of the of the great value. I mean, everybody understands. How a kingdom goes forth, right, on this earth. Very often kingdoms go forth conquering how? Well, with weaponry. Weaponry is something substantial. You can, you can put your hands on it. You can see the missiles fly and the bullets go. And you can hear and recoil from all of that. And you can understand this is an expensive venture. But the gospel goes forth through the foolishness of preaching The Lord has chosen the base things of this world to confound the wise of this world. And so we might be tempted to think, since it's just preaching and just a preacher, that it might might not be valuable. And yet, God has chosen that to advance his kingdom. And so it is indeed even more valuable because the kingdom that is advanced by the preaching of the gospel will outlast every kingdom that is advanced through armaments and war. So, make sure you're taking care of your minister. And you do. This is that general admonition to all Christians. Notice, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And that following directly onto that. So if you're not paying your minister, let me ask you, what are you spending the money on? If you're not tithing, what are you doing with that money? I can tell you what you're doing. If you're not tithing, you're sowing to the flesh. This is what we call Pastor Todd speaking straight. If you're not tithing, you're sowing to the flesh. That's what Paul says here. Because that tithe, as it was designed over and again, we see it in Scripture, that was designed for the maintenance of the ministry. He that soweth to his flesh, what shall you reap? Corruption. He that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And then finally, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. The well-doing that is spoken of specifically here 
is that tithe and maintenance of the ministry. But, that it, but there's also a general principle, beloved, that let us take pleasure in well-doing and rather than being weary in it. You remember the rebuke of the Lord to the saints in, in the days of Malachi. You have said, what a weariness is it, and you've snuffed at my offering, the Lord says. Well, let us not be weary in well-doing. As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. The word especially there, malista, can sometimes be understood as exclusively, but more pointedly it is make sure that your responsibilities are exhausted toward the primary before you take up the secondary. That's really what's being said there. When Paul will, will use that same word with regard to the ministry in 1 Timothy 5.17, right? They that worthy, sorry, they that, that labor in word and doctrine make sure that they are especially cared for, those elders that rule well. Okay. All right, so now uh, we have ver- verses 11 through the end. This is something that is somewhat unique. Here He says, you see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. To the Thessalonians, Paul will say, this is my signature. But notice here he says, this is the letter that I've written with my own hand. Very often Paul had a scribe to write his letters. Not here. Here he wrote, and I think this is simply a part of, of Paul's pressing the importance of what he had to say to them. That he took the time to write out this letter himself remember how we started with that wonderful statement of directness and importance because they had perverted the gospel paul will indeed double down on that importance by saying you see this letter i've written it with my own hand this is how important this is that you read it and that you learn from it and then also verses 12 through um, 13 uh, I think this is in keeping with what we just said. There are those who pervert the gospel of Christ in your midst. They want you to be circumcised. Why? Two reasons. Number one, so they can glory in your flesh. And what he means by that is that when they get you circumcised, they say, I've done a good deed before God. He loves me more. He doesn't love you for your good deeds. He loves you for Christ Jesus' sake. Secondly, um, uh, they don't want to suffer persecution. There were those who would persecute men like Paul who preached the pure gospel of Jesus Christ and said, no, it is not necessary to be circumcised. Right? And so Paul will, will say of those teachers that had infected the churches in Galatia, that not only are they putting a notch in their, in, their, in their Christian gun belt, if you were, through your circumcision, although it's not Christian at all. Secondly, they do so to avoid persecution. And beloved, any time that becomes our motivation, well, we just say it this way, we're doing it wrong. If we're doing something simply to avoid persecution, now I don't mean to say that we run forehead first into persecution. I don't mean to say that. The Apostle Paul was let down the, the uh, wall of Damascus in a basket. Sometimes it's, it, it's better to, if we can put it in Paul's case, to live to preach another day. 
We get that. But Paul would not allow himself to be muzzled for the gospel's sake, would he? And there's a distinction between those two things. These men here are circumcising because they want to avoid persecution from the Jews. That, that is sinful cowardice. And then finally, we note the irony. Neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law. They don't keep the law. And this is where the legalist and the antinomian always meet. Right? Because the legalist will say, I'm keeping the law of God. But what does he do? Well, secretly, clandestinely, he shuttles it off and hides it behind some screen and brings out something that he can keep instead. So the law doesn't convict him at all anymore. No, I've got that. Yeah, I've got that. Mm -hmm. I've got that too. Right? What does the antinomian do? Well, he's a little bit more honest. He just takes everything off the board. Says, I don't need to keep any of it. But notice they both do the same thing in that they take that pure and impossible law of God, which is given to us as a schoolmaster to draw us to Christ, and they use it instead as that which is swept aside, and they bring in something else by which they don't need Christ anymore. Well, that is damnable heresy and foul doctrine. God forbid that I should glory, Paul says, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Wait a minute, I thought you were talking about the cross of Christ, Paul. Well, Paul will say, I'm also crucified. Right? Yeah, we're coming up to a book where he will say, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There is a crucifixion that we all enjoy coming to Christ. We are all, we are co-crucified with Christ, as he says in Romans chapter 6, that we should no longer serve sin. He will say in Colossians chapter 3, you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Here he will say it this way, the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. This is why friendship with the world is enmity against God as, as the Apostle John, no, sorry, as the, as the Apostle James will tell us. John will say, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's not love for the world. It's being crucified with regard to the world. So, beloved, these are heart-searching questions. There's an ellipsis in verse 15 as we draw to a close. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. What's the ellipsis? The new creature avails everything. That's where it lives and dies. Right there. So we are a new creature in Christ. That is, the old man is crucified with Christ. As many then walk as according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy, and upon or even upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God here is the entirety of the church. That's the true Israel. And that would be a very, very important thing for the Galatian churches to hear who were making a distinction between the Israel in the flesh, the Jerusalem that now is, 
And they were contrasting that, or Paul contrasts that, to the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the mother of us all. Chapter 4. All right, so then, from henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. May I say that for the Apostle Paul, there was the sign and the thing signified. He, he bore in his body, that is, he had suffered at the hands of the Jews. He will say thrice from the Jews, I received 40 stripes save one. Now we don't know where in his career those actually took place. Okay, But he does bear in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, those marks that were also on Christ's back, that he will talk to the Colossian church about when he says, these are the sufferings of Christ now performed upon me. It is because of Christ I suffer these things. So for Paul, it's the sign and the thing signified. He has the marks on his back and he is crucified with Christ to the world. Right? Okay, very good. So then finally he closes with a benediction. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer.